Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Casey Olander. I'm the web content specialist here at the Hendrick Center. And today we're discussing habits, mental health, and spiritual formation. And if that sounds like three different topics, don't be afraid. We're going to talk about how they um, intersect and ways that they might overlap and relate to each other. So I'm excited because we're joined by our guest, Justin Whitmill Early. He is a lawyer, former missionary, and author and speaker. So Justin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Casey. I'm super excited to talk with you all. And Habits, spiritual formation, mental health, they all go together to me. I think they're the same topic, so let's find out. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump in. Um, I, will, I will preface this by saying, obviously, we can't speak to every single person's mental health situation. People need to um, do what's, what's right for them. Um, but, Justin, I would love to hear more about your story, kind of your journey, and how you came to care about this one singular topic of habits, mental health, and spiritual formation. So, Justin, I guess I'll start off by asking you, what are habits? And how did you become so passionate about them? Well, the what are habits is an easy answer. Habits are the small but consequential things that we do every day, um, particularly, and this is important, that are semi-conscious to unconscious. So there are all these kinds of things that happen in our top order thinking. But habit activity and this can be daily or it can kind of be weekly. It's the grooves that we settle in. It's the decisions that we don't have to make is the important part of habit. So the things that we we do because we've always done them and we do because we don't really think about them too hard. That's what makes them so important. Now, how I got into talking about habits, that's a whole different story because that's, you know, I'm a former missionary and lawyer who now talks and writes about habits. <laughs> um, so there's a story there. Can I just launch into that? Obviously, yes. <laughs> Please. Great. Let's do it. Um, the short version of that is that I graduated University of Virginia and went to be a missionary in China for a couple years, almost five, actually. And that was the time where I really felt called by the Lord to be in China. And then strangely, I felt called to leave China and go be a business lawyer, um, which is also, you know, that's a loaded statement on faith, vocation, and calling, but I, you know, probably the subject for a different podcast, but I really did feel called to leave China and go into business law. So the important takeaway there is that I really ran at the law with all the fervor of a man on a call, um, not just to do it excellently, but to sort of indwell it as an opportunity for, for missions. I, I still believe now sitting in my law office where I'm talking to you that, that the law and business need to be shaped in the shape of the gospel. They need to be formed, these institutions, into the image of the way that Christ created us in the world. But at the time, and law school was almost 10 years ago for me, actually, is when I started. Um, I just ran at it like uh, like a man on a calling and i was always adding more to my resume i was really busy i went at it just like everybody else did uh, you know staying up later waking up earlier and so looking back with the clarity of hindsight which is always 2020 i you know had this house of my life that was decorated with wonderful christian content on worldview and calling but the architecture of my habits was exactly the same 
as every other top law school student. And while it worked well for me and I graduated really high in my class and got my dream job in mergers and acquisitions at an international law firm down here in Richmond, Virginia, my life completely collapsed my first year of lawyering. I went from what was a carefree, passionate young parent. I had two two boys at the time that were both born during law school um, to being in very short order the nervous medicating lawyer who could not sleep or calm down unless I took sleeping pills or a couple drinks. Um, and this all happened right, right in my first year of lawyering. Um, I didn't know the word for panic attacks at the time. I really didn't even think of anxiety as a real thing. I thought it was a way that people described life as stressful. And I was familiar with that stress. I just never responded like this before. But what happened to me that first year was something I had never experienced before. Um, it was as if my mind caught a cold. It was as if my my heart came apathetic about all the things that I knew and was only responding to this sort of anxious schedule that I was experiencing. And I could talk about this for a long time, Casey, but the important part um, I would say is twofold. One, that was a time in my life where I realized um, that Psalm 23 is true, that the Lord really is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. And while I never want to experience that time of insomnia and panic, and even at some point, suicidal thoughts. I never want to experience that again. But I see now the Lord walked with me through that incredible low point and used it to make me into someone who is more like Christ, more loving, more patient, more sensitive. And primarily that sanctification that happened was through a great epiphany that your head can go this way, and your habits can go the opposite way, and your heart is going to start to follow habits. So with the clarity of hindsight, again, easy to say now, a long journey later, I realized that despite the fact that I had a great worldview, um, I was living according to a set of rigorous liturgical spiritual disciplines called everyday habits of the modern West. And they were the ways I looked at my phone, the ways I treated my schedule, the ways I, I didn't rest the way I didn't Sabbath, the way that I didn't sleep, the way that I thought everything was about what I could get done. And I now see those ordinary habits as deeply formative spiritual disciplines. So that's the short version. I now see that uh, habits are not neutral, nor can you ever get away with, from them. You're always going to be living according to habits. And once you realize that habits are spiritual liturgies in and of themselves, it becomes fairly intuitive to say, well, why don't I choose them carefully? And that's what a lot of my writing has been about ever since. Right. Wow. So you feel called to be a missionary, and then you feel called with a, a similar feeling of mission to mm-hmm. lawyering. Um, but then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, okay, this pace of life isn't going to work just looking the way that my peers look. Even though I know Christ, like my life needs to look like it, not just with like reading the Bible, yes. but also with things I mean, you defined habits as like things we don't even think about, right? Right, right. Very much so. Yeah. And so then how did you realize that connection between what your habits were, not thinking about them, to realizing, okay, maybe this is actually related to my spiritual life? Well, there were two ways. Um, The primary wake up was about a year into my struggle. I had tried medication. I had tried counseling. And neither of those were really moving the needle, though. I heartily recommend both to anybody, but I was still really struggling. And I ended up right around the new year sitting at a table with my two best friends, Steve and Matt. 
And I had this journal on the table where I had written out this like program of daily and weekly habits. And the reason I had done that was because my wife and I had said, let's just try to find something to rein in your chaos, like put a couple limits on your days and weeks. But there were small things like turning off my phone an hour a day, actually practicing a Sabbath, trying to do at least a meal with other people once a day and not always eating on the go, committing to scripture before phone. So I wasn't looking at my email first thing in the morning. I mean, all stuff that like I list them out like that, you know, they sound like good ideas, but I didn't think they were going to matter because at the time I had no idea how much these smallest and most ordinary patterns of our days and weeks actually affect our souls, not to mention our mental health, but our spiritual formation in the most deep and extraordinary ways. And so my life began to drastically change from this like day on. It was really a sharp pivot. And I I started asking myself, Casey, I mean, it was good. I started to feel different. No, not completely better all of a sudden. Like I could never in good conscience recommend to anybody who's struggling with their mental health that this will fix you right away. But it was the most meaningful change that had happened in that whole year of struggle. And so I just started to ask why was that? Like almost as if, like, why is this working? <laughs> you know? Um, and what I found in my reading, you know, as a, a lawyer and a Christian and a, you know, an armchair philosopher myself, I just started to <laughs> read and research and ask, why does this mattering so much? And I'm almost a little embarrassed to say that I started to realize that what I was doing was absolutely nothing new, but just a rediscovery of the spiritual disciplines of a an, a very old, because it's biblical, understanding of sanctification and participation in the Lord's work of sanctification. Um, but I was also reading pe- people like Jamie Smith or other people that were writing on cultural liturgies and um, understanding that there there is no neutral, that what I had happened in on, I thought, I thought that these ways that we used our phones or lived according to certain law school schedules or things or were... Could, we're happening in the realm of neutrality and we could put Christian content maybe on top of them. And, and I started to realize that, Oh, there, there is no neutral for the human heart. We are always gravitating, gravitating towards some love or another. And so it was both the experience of a deeply changed life. As I started practicing that, what I now know are spiritual disciplines and also then reading and realizing that this is a historical um, biblical way of living the faith. And maybe most, famously like coming to understand that what I had essentially done was create a rule of life, even though I never knew that word Mm -hmm. at the time. And that, that is when I started to realize there's, this is not just for me. Um, My story might be extreme, but I'm not unusual. And that's when I started to realize that way, everybody needs to start thinking about this. And that really started the writing about it to try to offer all the other people like me who are struggling with their mental health and sort of the chaotic sense that there's no form to life. I don't know. I'm just being, whipped around to different places and say, you're right, it's not, but that's a problem of the modern world. We haven't always lived this way, and we need to really think about um, the biblical and ancient practices of a rule of life and spiritual disciplines. (laughs) That's kind of funny that you're like, okay, I I invented this new thing. Wait a minute. No, I'm actually joining in with this old thing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Honestly, it was refreshing because, (laughs) you you know, if I I invented a new thing, like, you're always pretty skeptical. Like, really, did that happen? You're not really trying to make stuff up. Yeah, but it was deeply encouraging when um, I started to read about, yeah, just spiritual disciplines and the rule of life. And it was just like, oh, this is why I felt the way that I felt. And this is why this is 
working the way that it's working because it's how God made us and it's how the church has lived usually. And that gave me a sense of history and tradition and theology that um, was not present on that night with my journal where I was asking my friends, you know, that it, it started as an experiment. It ended as like realizing that I was in a deep, strong and comforting current of Christian theology for centuries. That is comforting to know you're joining in with these like ancient yes. friends. Yes, yes, very much so. So how did you identify, I assume these, uh, yeah, these ancient saints weren't telling you to turn off your phone for an hour, right? But uh, how did you and your wife, you said you you sat down and you made this list. How did you come to like these specific habits? How did you identify, oh, it's my relationship with technology or specifically my phone? Um, I guess, what did that kind of look like for you? Yeah, that's such a good question because some of them... Um, we didn't invent like Sabbath. <laughs> you just you sort of suddenly look back and realize that you've been ignoring one or more of the Ten Commandments your whole life. Um, other ones that were like, turn my phone off for an hour a day and scripture before phone. I'll go with both of those because those have been incredibly important disciplines that I still, even yesterday, did, Casey, um, and today. Like, I still actually live like this, surprisingly. Um, so, you know... You, it is a lot of people intuit that something is happening to them with their smartphone and that they need different practices. And so I'm no, I'm no different in that sense. I was intuiting that something was fracturing my sense of presence. And honestly, I think I had read about each of those practices somewhere else. I had heard in a podcast that turning your phone off for an hour a day was one of the most psychologically effective ways to break phone addictions. Um, I had also read um, someone talking about morning prayer and how one easy marker is just to say, do you go to prayer before you go to your phone? I'm actually not sure where I came to it, but those were places where I thought, that, well, that makes sense. Let's just try that. Now, what I think is interesting, Casey, is that I was in the place, like probably most other people are listening to this, and they're hearing it right now, and they're saying, that sounds like a wise idea, but is that really going to make or break my life? Or is that really necessary? And I am here to tell you, yes, it is. Because here is what is happening. Um, we are overlooking one of those formational moments of our day in waking. And by default, giving it to our smartphone. I think some most recent statistic I read was some 90% of Americans begin their day in their, in their phone in bed. Wow. And it is... Now, unsurprising to me that if we begin our day in Twitter, we become spiritually formed into angry people. If we begin our day in cable news, we become spiritually formed into very, very worried and frustrated people. If we begin our day in Instagram, we become formed into very, very envious or self-conscious people. Uh, and I could, I could go on. Um, we have a God-shaped and God-sized hole in our hearts. So we wake up every day wondering, how is it that I'm justified? <laughs> Like, can somebody look at me and tell me that I'm worth it today? And I, for many weeks, months, really years, actually looked to my inbox to say, um, what am I going to do pr to prove that I'm lovable today? And the answer as an, a young lawyer was, well, I need to do these tasks. Like, I, I've already seen, like, I already see the list of things I need to do today in my inbox. 
And I never would have said, I had way better theology, way better worldview to say, I'm going to go find my identity and work today. I would never have said that. (laughs) Probably nobody listening would. Not explicitly. But that's the whole point of what we're talking about. Exactly. We would never say it explicitly. Our head's going that way. But our heart is following the habit. When you look there first thing every day, we become our habits of attention. And when I noticed, and anybody who practices this will, you will feel extraordinarily different if you, for the next 30 days, decide to spend your waking moments in either silence, meditation, prayer, or scripture. Any of those things work, but do it before you go to your phone. You will find your life is dramatically different. And it's unsurprising because as the scriptures tell us, prayer and the word of God are here. They're they're divine. They're here for a reason. Um, And it, it sort of the phone off for an hour every day is is similar just in that it was one of those practices where I realized, oh, this is not about a life hack to get more done, though I would recommend that. Anybody who wants to be more productive, turn your phone off, literally off, and and, and see how your mind works differently when you work. But what I realized is, is that I was made for presence, presence with other people. And when I was turning off my phone, I was suddenly with my kids and with my wife in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. And it became intuitive once again that I was living in a a rushing current of fractured presence and that I was going to try to be omnipresent for the rest of my life if I didn't turn off my phone. Because the the phone encourages us to sort of sense that we can actually be like God and be everywhere. And unsurprisingly, our mental health splinters when we believe that and act that out, it is a dangerous spiritual narrative that is essentially replaying the sin of Eden over and over. Like I'd rather be God than worship him. Um, So I'm kind of raising the stakes of phone usage on purpose in that, of course, again, we'd never say that. Like I'd never pick up my phone and say like, I want to be God, thus I will swipe, Uh, (laughs) you know, but those habits that worship is bound up in habits and swiping with our thumb uh, in the ways that is now available to us very quickly becomes a liturgical habit of I am God through my thumb's motions. And I can be everywhere and anywhere and present to all people at any time. And once again, I'm not surprised we have the mental health epidemics that we do when our habits are leading us in such idolatry. Of course, we fracture because, you know, worship forms us. And our, we, you know, as the psalmist says, those who make and trust them idols will become like them. So that formation is, is dangerous, even if we don't know that it's worship. And that's, that's why I want to call people's attention to the liturgical and spiritually, the spiritual discipline nature of habits, because so much is happening that we didn't know was happening there. Yeah. I feel like you're highlighting some interesting things about anthropology, like who we are as humans. We don't consciously set out to say, you know what, I'm going to worship my phone or I want to feel loved. And so I'm going to check my email or my social media or whatever. Um, but a lot of times the, the rhythms like our bodies, um, sometimes lead the way in a way that we don't think that they do. We think oh, my, my mind is in charge. And so if I cognitively think, um, whatever is true, like about how Jesus is Lord, but my body does something else, then it'll just be fine. I'll, I'll go with my mind. But you're saying that that's not the case. We're we're creatures and we're finite and we're limited, um, even sometimes such that we're limited in our own awareness of ourselves. 
Yes. And I think we, it's such a good point, Casey, the way you just put it. I think we know this when it comes to um, the most visceral tasks of the body. You know, we recognize, for example, that exercise will change us, Mm -hmm. Um, that something happens to our body when we move it in this way or that, and that that's not necessarily neutral. Um, I think we, we, we intuit it and know it probably rather explicitly with sex that, that there are acts that are not neutral. Like you can't just say I am devoted to my wife or husband and then go, as Paul says, you know, unite your body with a prostitute because something happens spiritually in those moments. Like your body isn't, is not neutral. I just think we probably this is probably the task of a, another podcast or smarter people than me. But I think our theology of the body is actually probably very underdeveloped in the 21st century West, uh, Western Christianity. I think that we have assumed a much uh, more pagan understanding of our body. And that is that we're uh, basically in sort of a platonic, char- in platonic charge of it, as in the important things happen up here in the head. And what happens down here in the body is not that important. That's just of the world. That's not biblical. Um, God created our bodies and then he breathed life into them. So they're not accidental and they matter. I mean, I'll short circuit this discussion because I'm probably not qualified to give a Protestant theology of the body here on this podcast, but <laughs> it may be important. But when it comes to our phones, I think we don't realize how much our bodily attunement, attention, gaze, swiping is actually forming our mental health and our souls. And if we did, we'd probably realize why so much American Christianity looks like it does and why so much of the Western mental health problems are what they are. Mm -hmm. And it's, I also, I think I want to mention too, it's not that phones themselves are always evil, um, even though like, you know, sometimes our posture is changed and sometimes like, you know, mm-hmm. our eyes change based on how, we look, how much we look at them. But I was thinking like a phone can be a great resource to call a friend who's like an actual human yes. being that you can connect yes. with or to FaceTime yes. somebody who lives far away. Um, they can be an instrument that actually cultivates connection instead of just stealing it. But it, it depends on, I think, your intentionality with the way that you use it. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, though I would add something to the end there. But first, the agreement. Yes, um, it would be super important to know that I am no Luddite. I'm a corporate lawyer and a writer who is on my phone and my computer now and You're most Zoom right of the now. day. Yes, here we go to the redemptive point of technology. And just, you know, as a as a you know, a Bible believing Christian, I believe what Genesis says. And that is that God created the world and it was good. And that we are also called to create. And that fundamentally, I believe that technology is more redeemable than it is evil Mm -hmm. any day of the week. So sometimes people say, well, it's good too, right? It's not all bad. And I would not only say yes, I would say that doesn't quite encapsulate it. Technology is can and should be very good the way that God says good in creation. The problem is only that it's actually just way more important than we think. I think like sex, like money, like power, the most important things that God created have the greatest capacity for evil and brokenness and the greatest capacity for good. And I would put technology right there in that category because it's a mode fundamentally of human communication and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And for us to communicate with each other, it's just tremendously wonderful. 
that I can call my wife and tell her I love her in the middle of the day from the office, or that my son can FaceTime me when he scrapes his knee and I can comfort him, or that we can have this incredible conversation across time zones, is not only good, it's very good in the Genesis sense of it, but that I could go home tonight and create a secret user account and go do things on the internet that nobody would know. That is a possibility we now all live with. And that is very, very dangerous. And so if we don't have patterns of different, radically different technology uses, um, we will slip into some of the most dangerous evils almost unconsciously. And so I wouldn't, I just would caution anybody against saying, well, technology is neutral. It just depends on the intentions you bring to it. That's not quite enough. It, intentions are very important, but it also really depends on how this is made. Um, it depends on how our computer is made. For example, I would love the next generation of Christians to be thinking about are disappearing chats an appropriate version of technology, period? Hmm. Like, like is, is that our, or our um, swipe you know, right for a private browsing window? Is that good technology? Because it, it means that despite your best intentions, you are almost certainly going to use this for evil. And I, I say this uh, because Tolkien and Aristotle and many other writers and philosophers in the 2000, century, 2000 years between those two back this up. Like this is the Ring of Gaiji's idea that the uh, Lord of the Rings was based on. You know, what happens when you give a human being a ring that makes them invisible? What will they go do? And it was the philosopher's way of saying, like, clearly human nature is flawed because we all know what people will go do. Are they going to use it to go, you know, put money in people's pockets and do kind <laughs> things for widows? Or are they going to, you know, I don't even have to give the list of things. Um, and so tech, when technology allows us to disappear, um, we have really dangerous questions. When it allows us to comment on people's posts um, with you know just vitriolic poison and never be known because we created a secret account. I'm not sure these are actually things that should exist. Hmm. Um, so it matters how technology is created. And I'd love to see a new generation of Christian entrepreneurs who say, we're going to make better social media platforms. We're going to make better devices. Um, but that's a generational thing. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But then again, anything that can be accomplished in one generation is probably dreaming too small anyway. So I would love Christians to think about that in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We think, of, I mean, we affirm that humans are totally depraved and we've rebelled against God. And thankfully, we also affirm that <clears throat> Jesus makes a way for us to be made right with him, that Jesus is the one who accomplished everything on our behalf. And um, so I wonder, in light of that, that as Christians, we, we're all about God's grace. Um, how do you reconcile that? Like if somebody says to you, Justin, that sounds a little legalistic, like you really want me yes. to put that many boundaries on my phone or on like the stuff I feel like doing all the time. I just want to rest in God's grace. Jesus died and rose again. Like how do you, how do you respond to that? Well, first I would affirm we're on the same page of theology. Um, that this is unquestionable. It's unassailable. Um, the, we are saved not by our good habits. We are saved by Jesus' good work on our behalf. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think um, 
I think a, a fear of legalism was actually probably what made me the person that I was going into law school, mm. which is something to notice. Um, we should be good at identifying legalism. And I would define legalism as looking for anything besides Christ for your justification. So looking to your work, looking to your Christian practice, looking to the health of your marriage or the the greatness of how you raise kids, looking at whatever it is, your bank account, your followers online, whatever it is that makes you feel like, oh, I'm worth it today. Um, you, you're now basing your the validity of your existence or your sense of justification on something else but that's not Christ. And I think what's important to note, Casey, is that um, we are all equally prone to do that. We do it in radically different ways, but we're all equally prone to do that. So I always, I usually try to turn this question gently back to the asker and say, what makes you think you're more prone to legalism simply because you're trying to cooperate in your sanctification? As in, you, if you did nothing, you look to your status as a Christian who just does nothing and rests in God's grace and start to imagine that that's why you're actually doing well as a Christian. I mean, that's how broken we are. So legalism is going to be a problem everywhere. Um, and so I always just am skeptical of the upshot of that question. But the, the I think the more final answer is just that uh, I always try to remind people habits will not change God's love for you, mm-hmm. but God's love for you should change your habits. Okay. And so that is just time. one short summary way to say, read the, read, read the Bible and the way that Jesus talks or the way that Paul ends any of his letters. After explaining the love and the unconditional, the unconditional love of God and justification by faith alone, Paul is extremely comfortable, and so is Jesus, in telling us how to live our lives, telling us what to do in light of that. Okay? And that is the... That's just the uh, correct use of the law, to put it in Reformed theologies in a sense. I mean, the, the idea of the, the law was to tell us, one, uh, why we're damned, you know, to show us the standard that we're not going to live up to. Two, to create order in society. Um, that's another use. And like the, the Ten Commandments have some practical use in most cultures. But three, to show us the path for the good life. And these are traditional biblical understandings of the use of the law. And that third one that I mentioned is about sanctification. Um, it's the idea of, of participating in your sanctification, which does not justify you. But it is God is trying to work in your life. He has laid out good works for us in advance, Ephesians says. And so I wholeheartedly now look at habits as a way to honor God and participate in my sanctification, not at all a way to justify myself. I want to come back to that. uh, I used a pithy phrase and I liked it. Um, I think it was that you said, God, habits don't change God's love for you, but God's love for you should change your habits. I think that's a a great way of looking at it um, because it, it removes from us this idea that, you know, if I, if I live a good enough life, if I like order all my things, if I have the appropriate boundaries on my technology and stuff, then God will like me. But rather Mm -hmm. it gives us this freedom as believers to be like, God already loved me when I was at my worst in my deepest mess. Jesus still died for me. And so out of that, 
wow, I can understand a little bit of this great love and then be motivated. How can I order my life so that it's honoring to him? And how can I be a good steward of my health, my mental health, my physical health, my um, things that have been entrusted to me, like phones and computers and the internet or what have you, um, as as a, a means of worshiping God, of being intentional with worshiping God instead of worshiping the good gifts that he gives. That's, yes, that's exactly it. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So I love how you said that. Um, what is the value of uh, doing this in community? So I definitely see value in like, okay, for me, like if I read scripture before I'm on my phone, like that puts me in a better mental state and um, it puts me in a good spot. But what is the value of doing this with other people? Uh, really everything, because I don't see a route to do this alone. Um, the The book... It, on this that I wrote is called the, the common rule, which is a play on the idea of the rule of life that I mentioned earlier, um, a program of spiritual habits that changes you. The rule of the rules of life were traditionally done in, in monasteries amongst communities of monks. Um, the, the, ver the, the lessons we could draw from acts where people would point to that as an example of a rule of life happened in the community of the church of early believers. Um, you could point to all the biblical examples of this, but you could also just look to the whole of the Bible and how it describes the church and our relationship with Jesus. And, and that is that we were not made to walk with Jesus alone. We we're made to walk with Jesus alongside other people. And this is actually, as you know, something that there's, I now have a whole, whole book on because this is so important to me. But just in the habit sense, um, any habit psychology will actually tell you that it is extraordinarily hard to start and keep a habit alone, but it is uh, very, very possible to do it in community. So I always tell people to start any of this stuff. You pick one habit, let's call it scriptural warfare, one person and do it with them for about four to six weeks, a month, maybe. And those are the ingredients, one small change, one other person and one limited time frame, like a month, where you can actually build a new habit. But that other person, Casey, is nearly essential. That sense of accountability and community, that is how we change. And I also, I always think it's, um, it's just delicious to read the habit philosophy and hear 
um, psychologists say that, you know, as it turns out, we can't change unless we're in a community of other people who believes in some higher calling for themselves. So like, that's the church. That's yeah. why we have the church. We were built to change in the local church. So um, find somebody in your small group, ask them if they want to do this habit together. That is the route to practically starting any of this. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um I really enjoy the common rule and I've uh, sent it to a number of people. Um, and so I think that that's really helpful. It's, um, I think helpful and hopeful that, uh, it's not just me by myself and it's not even just me and Jesus, but it's okay. God has saved his Jesus's bride, the church, um, and enabled us and equipped us to, um, do some, like you said, small incremental things you've given people mm-hmm. like really easy bite-sized things. Um, they don't have to start with, Eight habits for the rest of your life forever. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, Only the weird people like me will do them all at one time. Um, <laughs> most, most of most of us will do them incrementally, and that is actually the way to radically change your life. So start small. The small things are the big things, as it turns out. Do you encourage people? What is it about the rhythms of like daily and or weekly? Is there anything to be said for like quarterly or annual habits? Um, I don't know if you can call them habits at that point. That, that is exactly the conversation. We could get really esoteric here, but, um, you know, usually we would call them traditions or rituals when they occur less than, you know, weekly, because it, it is a little, it's harder to be subconscious about things that only occur annually, but not entirely because we all know, you know, at Christmas time, we just, oh, we all sort of celebrate it this way in our family, like mm-hmm. traditions become that. Um, so you should think about it writ large for sure. But it's the micro uh, micro habits on the daily to weekly level that I think are the most powerful and spiritually formative practices that we don't know we have. And that's why I point people to those. Um, your, some of your weekly and daily rhythms are probably the things that are discipling you the most. And I would just want to encourage the church to give that daily and weekly discipleship over to Jesus rather than the cultural norms of the modern technological West. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You're definitely being discipled. You're being formed by something, but there's hope for the fact that you can actually be intentional about what it is. You can actually submit to the Lordship of Jesus and you can, um, yeah, be a steward of things yes. that he's entrusted to you. Yes, that's absolutely right. We, we are all being discipled by American culture. Um, unless you are counter discipling yourself in the way of Jesus. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would revise that. You're not counter-discipling yourself unless you're allowing Jesus to be the counter-discipleship. There you go. <laughs> we are primarily following him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're intentional with where, you're, yeah, where your mind is yeah. going, where your affections are going, instead of letting somebody else decide it for you. Um, yeah, that's really good. Um, can you speak to, um, I guess, uh, a couple more of the ways that um, you doing these habits has formed like you, your family, your community, um, kind of the, yeah, the group, whatever group you inhabit? Well, you know, I wrote in the common rule about a weekly practice of spending an intentional hour in conversation with friends every week. And um that habit is not as pithy as scripture before phone, but it it actually became one of the most important and cherished practices for me over the past few years. And that is just to look for a regular, typically weekly rhythm of deep conversation with other friends. And 
that that has really changed the way that I walk with the Lord in recent years. Um, I've seen, I think, looking to my right and looking to my left, just the difference in people who persevere in their walk with the Lord, who persevere in their marriage, who persevere through mental health struggles. Um, the difference between those people and the ones who fall away or are crushed by mental health struggles or are receding or drawing back from their marriage, it's not usually the circumstances because we all face suffering and difficulty. It's just life, as it turns out, is very hard. We live in a fallen world and we are sinners after all. But those who walk through those circumstances alone are almost doomed to failure because I believe that God really did make us for other people. He made us to experience him the most or, or not. To, the, I don't think we can even experience God correctly until we experience him alongside other people because he made us in the Trinitarian image of God. We need other people to fill out that image bearing. So my, my point is that practice of communal living which helps me practice all these habits in community of my family and my friends, that has drastically changed things, maybe more than anything else. Because uh, again, back to the, the American culture of discipleship, we're, we're being aggressively discipled into individualism if we do nothing else. That's the current of American culture to become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. And I've come to believe that fighting back against that current towards a communal life where friendship um, is sacred and seen as as spiritually valuable, like on the same level of, um, you know, quiet times in church, walking deeply with other people should be recognized as an incredibly spiritually formative practice. I've, I've just seen that as one of the key issues for the modern church. We can do a lot of other things right, but if we get that wrong, we're not living the way that God made us or the way that Jesus calls us to. So we, we can't be people who are, you know, so good at scripture before phone and we put our phone away and we Sabbath and yet no one in our life actually knows who we are. Hmm. That's not a Christian. That's not, that's not describing the life that Christ called us to. We need to figure out ways to radically push against that individualistic current and live into a community of people. And that, you know, as we talked about before this, that's, that's the subject of my most recent book, Made for People because I've found that that one practice in the common rule was actually so important. So the made for people is kind of an exploration of the theology behind why we can't, we can't live a, a spiritual life alone, why it all falls apart if we try to do it alone. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying that these habits are not just good for you, but they're part of the, like Jesus talks about the greatest commandment to love the Lord, your God, but then also the second is like it to love your neighbor and you can't yes. very well love your neighbor in isolation. That's exactly, and none of these, you know, I, I try to be really clear in the common rule. Um, you'll read at the very beginning that these are not habits designed to optimize your life. They're not habits designed to make your life easier or neater or more productive. They're designed to actually push you out of you into the love of God and neighbor. So they're, in that sense, they're, you know, yes, we're talking about inward spiritual disciplines in some sense, but the inward spiritual disciplines are always pushing you outward, mm. Either, you know. I think it was Luther who called um, our sinful state like being curved in. I can't remember the Latin, in cravatus say or something maybe. But like the state of being sinful is always being curved into yourself. And these spiritual disciplines are trying to push us out towards the love of God, towards the love of neighbor, of course, the greatest commandment. 
Um, but I think we need a particular push in our modern moment to say that you can't do those spiritual disciplines correctly unless you're doing them intimately alongside other people. I think we've been so formed in the American water of individualism that we kind of sense our, our Christian life can happen in that structure. And made for people is sort of a, a treatise on saying, no, you are fundamentally created in the communal Trinitarian image of God, which is why nothing works until you're doing it in friendship with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, I like that you're highlighting too. We actually have an episode on Sabbath. It's called The Lost Art. Uh, I'm sorry, it's called uh, Sabbath for Your Soul. And then we have an episode on friendship called The Lost Art of Friendship. And so <laughs> we're really on board with these things that you're we're discussing. We're tracking on these topics. That's so great. <laughs> I like that. Did you say The Lost Art of Friendship? Yes. Or is it The Lost? I, I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I can't wait to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish that we had more time to talk. I feel like, yeah, this we've talked about a lot of things that could be an episode in and of themselves. But I think the, sure. the uh, encouragement that we have for um, our listeners that um, you can be intentional about your habits, not in order to please God or make him love you, but in order to be a good steward. And this intentionality with habits is something that actually can cause you to flourish and cause you to love God mm-hmm. and love your neighbor more. Yes. So yes. real quick, Justin, if people want to connect with you and find out more about the work that you're doing, where can they find you? Two best ways to do that would be to go to my website, justinwhitmoreearly.com. And um, I've got a mailing list that people can subscribe to there. And I'm always sending out maybe article ideas or thoughts or recent podcasts like these that I think are useful. Um, And then second, I am on social media. Instagram is where I'm most active and putting out some of this content and responding to people. Um, As you might know from the conversation I limit my engagement there and, and have certain rules and practices about how I do it, but I am um, there in my own way. And so people can come find me there and I won't respond to messages right away, but I always eventually respond. So you're always free to direct message me there. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time, Justin. I'm really grateful that you were able to be here today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Casey. This has just been wonderful, and I really appreciate your great questions. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, we also want to say thanks to our listeners for joining us. Uh, We hope that you join us next time at the table when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.